2014 Faith Forward podcast series. The following presentation was recorded live at the 2014 Faith Forward gathering, which was held in Nashville, Tennessee. On May 19th through the 22nd of that year, hundreds of conversation partners from across the globe and spanning dozens of denominational traditions gathered to question, share, and be inspired to reimagine ministry with youth and children. This podcast episode features Phyllis Tickle's presentation at this gathering, which she titled Village Vitality, Stepping Forward in Cross-Generational Rhythm. It's wonderful to be here with you. Um, There are two uh, theses, I suppose, uh, that we're going to, or two premises maybe, that we're going to deal with uh, today while I'm uh, with you. Uh, The first is pure history. After that rousing beginning, you can now kind of, you know, slip into mid-morning whatever while I talk history. You're going to be fascinated, all right? Okay. (laughs) Danielle said the magic word when she said emergence church uh, or the great emergence. Uh, The first premise then is that we are in a strange time, and you didn't come here to have me tell you that. You already know it. We're in a very strange time, but not a singular one. That is to say, we're in a time that has its pattern before that. We're in a thing being called, that's called the great emergence. Um, And about every 500 years, uh, Latinized Christianity, or those cultures in which Latinized Christianity exists, feel some need to go through a mighty upheaval, and everything goes whoosh. Uh, All of society goes whoosh, and so does all of, of religion. So we're in the great emergence in the 21st century. If you go back five centuries to the 16th century, you hit the Great Reformation, right? And if you go back five centuries from the Great Reformation in the 16th century, you hit the 11th century in the Great Schism or the Great Schism, according to where you grew up and learned to say it's the same thing. Uh, if you go back 500 years from that, you hit the 6th century, and it's the Great Decline and Fall. And if you go back 500 years from that, you hit the 1st century, uh, and it's uh, the Great Transformation or the Great Transition. It gets both names. Um, which is to say, and who knows why? Uh, it's just true that every 500 years, some, for some reason, everything changes. And the religion that holds hegemony, holds pride of place, has to change with it. And that's what we're going through now. History is not prescriptive. But history is almost always descriptive. And as intelligent, working people working in the kingdom of God, we have to pay attention to the fact that for whatever reason, there's a pattern. I'm not saying that 400 years from now or 500 years from now, we will do it again. I don't know. I can only say that we have done it and done it and done it from the very beginning. And every time we go through one of these upheavals, and our, the Great Reformation was dated from October 31st, 1517, right? And we all know that Martin Luther did not go to bed on October 30th, 1517, a good Catholic, and wake up a raging reformer on October 31st. That's stupid. Uh, it just doesn't happen that way. There's a, there's a kind of lead-in, if you will. It's called, in the case of the Reformation, a peri-reformation. In our case, it's called the peri-emergence. But it's about 150 years in which you can see this thing just beginning to build and build and build and build before it blows like this. And what we're doing in that 150 years of Perry is we're taking down or disestablishing all the stuff that was the authority for the last 500 years. That's all we're doing. All the Perry Reformation was doing was disestablishing bit by bit the papacy, the curia, and the magisterium. And then on October 31st, 1517, we wake up and Martin Luther looks around and says, so now who's calling the shots? Now where is our authority? Um, And it takes about 100 years to put it back in place. 
In the same way, we're living through the great emergence. You could have probably been perfectly happy without knowing that, but you'll do your job better for having food with it. We're living in the great emergence, and there's been about a hundred, and we're going to, apparently history is going to say, the great emergence began, is marked by 9-11, that 9-11 will be to what we're going through, the same thing that October 31st, 1517 was to the Great Reformation. So we've had a period of about 150 years that leads up to that moment, be it 9-11 or whatever, when we look around and say, where now is the authority? And when we begin to look and say, Protestantism for the last 500 years has held hegemony. It's the form of Christianity that has been most dominant. What is it in, in Protestantism that won't wash? What is it that's wrong? What is it that has to change? And even as we're saying that, we're also birthing a whole new stream of Christianity, if you will, a whole new tributary in the river that is Christianity. In, in the great uh, schism, uh, when that happened in the 11th century, Mediterranean Christianity split, right? That's all it did. And we got Eastern Orthodox spiritual, uh, Christianity out of it, and we got Roman Catholicism. Prior to that, it had been Mediterranean Catholicism. Suddenly, we've got two streams going. When in 1517, when the Great Reformation came along, all of a sudden, we've got a whole new tributary, and it's called Protestantism. And most of us in this room probably come out of that tradition or out of the Anglican one, right? But Roman Catholicism did not cease to exist. In the same way, Protestantism isn't going to cease to exist, even though we're birthing out a new tributary called Emergence Christianity. That's all we're doing. And let me sidebar here just to say, because you look at the figures, and, and it didn't dawn on me to say this until about a year or so ago. If 500, and it's true, if 500 years ago Roman Catholics had been as neurotic about statistics as we are, they would have shot the Pope, burned the Vatican, and moved to China. Because there was, <laughs> they would have. There was nothing to make Protestants out of except Roman Catholics. There's nothing to make emergence Christians out of except Protestants and Roman Catholics and a few Eastern Orthodox. That's all it is. So, of course, the figures are readjusting. There's no question. But regardless of all of that, the second premise, the second premise is that the Abrahamic faiths have always been transmitted domestically. Always. The first part of transmission of the, of the Abrahamic faiths is in the tent and then the synagogue and then the temple. Or, if you want to do it in Protestant terms, it's in the home, in the church, and then in the cathedral. That's how it goes, and we're not going to change that. All we're going to change is the context in which we do it. Now, in, in this time of great emergence in which you are practicing your ministry, and I'm doing whatever it is I do, in, I'm not quite sure uh, what it is, but in this time of great emergence, as in all the other upheaval, times of upheaval, spirituality changes, ecclesiology changes, and theology changes. And always there's a pushing back against that which held hegemony. The pushing back for us is against doctrine and against the lack of smells and bells and narrative. Whatever else you hear, please hear that. What we're, what, what we're looking for now, what emergence Christians are looking for now, what the bulk of Christianity, I suspect, certainly in this country and in Europe and Canada, what it's looking for is narrative. Give us the story. Don't give us the doctrine. Give us the story. Not just the Bible stories, but also the stories of the church. Give us our liturgy, if you will, or give us the richness of our tradition and give us the stories. 
Now, as we pursue that, as that becomes the formative thing, something happened. In the peri-emergence, which can be dated from 1842, and I can do five hours if you want to sit here and listen to it, but you don't. I can do five hours on the peri-emergence. In terms of what we're doing here today, probably, and there are about 44 different things that happened in that, in that 150 years to disestablish the hegemony of Protestantism and to open up new ways of ecclesiology and theology. From our point of view, for what we're doing today, probably, and I'm being dead serious before I get there, I'm being dead serious, could not be more serious. The thing that mattered most in all of those 44 changes over that 150 years of getting up to where we are now happened in 1962, 63, and 64, which, if you're tracking with me, is the year, 62, is the year the birth control pill was postulated. 63 is the year it was circulated for trial. And 64 is the year it's released uh, to public consumption. Why does that impact your... What I'm about to say, I, 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 am, I am not a feminist um, uh, because I'm too old. Um, <laughs> just not, you know. Uh, and, and because I discovered a long time ago you can't have seven kids by the same man and be credible as a feminist. Um, it, just, it just doesn't work. <laughs> He's cute, uh, but, but it took a lot of imagination. No, never mind. Uh, it's got nothing to do with what you're doing. Whatever. Anyway, whatever. So what I'm about to say is not in any way a, a condemnation of my, of my fellow sisters. Uh, it is not at all. This is pure history, and I'm dead serious. I could not be more serious. Religionist after religionist has said the same thing I'm about to say to you. Maybe not quite so familiarly, but they've said the same thing. Which is to say that when the pill comes into general use in our culture, everything shifts sociologically. It just does. The pill is important not because it controls fertility, says the woman with seven children, uh, but... but <laughs> We've known how to control fertility, more or less, for hundreds of years. We didn't like the methods, but we knew how to control it, right? So yes, it matters that it controls conception, but that's not what's significant. Beginning with the Second World War, when we had Rosie the Riveter, remember her, or Wendy the Welder, yes. When we put, for the first time in Western history, we put good, established, duly married, whatever, women, out of the home, working. The only way Johnny was going to come home again was if Rosie went to the, the plant and began to throw those rivets, right? The only way it was going to happen was if Rosie went to work. So Rosie gets some sort of taste of working out and, and, and earning money, and that's, that's a good thing. And the war is over. When it's over, Rosie goes back to being Mrs. Johnny. Uh, and we call, call them June and Ward Cleaver, you know, and, and that's okay. And they settle down into doing what they're, whatever they're going to do. But while Johnny was off to war, uh, Rosie had not only a job, but she had two or three children she had to take care of, one or two of whom was a female. And when it's all over, and when Johnny comes home again, that's what's wrong with June and Ward Cleaver. They only had boys. What's, what's the use of that? Uh, you know, so had they had girls, they would call, we'd call them Betty Friedan or Gloria Steinem, right? They came, they went through pubescence with Daddy gone. And this is not a trash man thing either. Uh, I love every one of you. Just see me outside afterwards. You're never too old to hope. But, but, 
But, but what, what happens is those girls are looking now and daddy's back and all of a sudden the dynamics domestically changes. The dynamics change when now I have to go ask daddy if I want something. Mama can no longer tell me. I can't, you know, I, daddy says, mama doesn't sing anymore. Mama doesn't whistle anymore the way she did when daddy was gone, you know. Daddy says something about crowing hens and whistling women come to no good end. Am I doing anything for you? Some of you who are older remember all of this. Uh, when daddy wasn't here, we didn't hear those angry noises after lights out. And they say, does Gloria Steinem and does Betty Friedan and their generation, not on my watch. It's not going to happen on my watch. And so they get a college education, right? And they have a college education through the 50s and they get good jobs. They're executive secretaries. How wonderful is that? Bright as a tack, glass ceiling, glass ceiling. And there's a good reason for the glass ceiling. And now we will be anatomical. The honest truth of it is in those days before the pill, in those days before chemistry, uh, women went through the menses. Now, as you all know, I hope you know, you can suppress the menses if you wish to uh, for four or five years and then come off of medicine and conceive a child and then go back on. How convenient is that? That wasn't true in the late 50s and the early 60s. And the truth of it was that when the menses was happening all the time, there's about one week out of, the, out of every month when a woman is not at her most acute, shall we say, intellectually, uh, when she's socially a little uncomfortable, disadvantaged, in general when she's uh, supposed to be emotionally labile, uh, which is a fancy word for being mad as hell uh, for about a week. And my one feminist joke is I have never, ever, ever, and will never understand why it was worse to be mad as hell one week out of the, year, out of the month and get it over with as opposed to being like guys who go around mad as hell all the time. And I, you know, at least ours was programmed uh, and, you, and you knew it was happening, all right? But nonetheless, that social discomfort, that lack of acuity, that little fogginess that, app that appertained, by the 1964, when that pill is released, you have bunches of executive secretaries, and the University of Michigan is full of this data, have a bunches of executive secretaries who say, aha, the big boss is coming from New York on Monday. Mrs. Murphy, which is a euphemism, Mrs. Murphy is supposed to come Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday. I can't afford to have the big boss and Ms. Murphy here at the same time. So I will take three or four pills. The records are there. I will take three or four pills from next month and put Ms. Murphy off till the big boss is gone. And then next month, I will say to the doctor, I dropped them in the commode, or I don't know, the dog ate them. You should see the dog. She's a wreck. But, but <laughs> whatever. Whatever. And so it worked. Because you can see the glass ceiling began to go back. Because what we now have is mental acuity at any time that we need equal mental acuity. Among the gen between the genders. And so for the first time, and you can see it by 67 or 68, by, by 69, 70, it's very clear. For the first time in history, probably, and that's a broad statement, for the first time in history, the home is no longer what it's about. He has always gone out and conquered the world like this, right? 
Now, he may have misbehaved out here, but he's gone out and conquered it for the sake of the home. All of this was for the sake of the family, and she ran it, right? Now, by 69 and 70, they are both going out to conquer the world because they both can. Now, if you look at the statistics, about half of our homes have uh, the female is, is a co-earner, and about 49% of them the principal earner or something like that. Anyway, what... They're both going out to conquer the world, and the two children are going out to be wherever they're parked for 12 hours, 10 hours, whatever it is, daycare or something. And we come back at the end of the day so that the home can restore us. Do you hear what I'm saying? Because this is serious. The home is no longer, the tent is no longer what it's about. What the tent is now is the place we restore ourselves so we can go make a difference in the world like this. When that happens, and you can watch it from 72, 73 along in there, when that happens, the first thing that goes is the family blessing. That's not, and, and that's for, it's not to say that you don't sit down right quickly and shoot one up, we thank you, Lord, for this. It is to say that that's, that, that family altar, that thing that always appertained, when we sat down together and when we prayed an honest prayer of thanksgiving, and the truth is, it's just hard as all get out to be thankful for carryout from Papa John's. It's just, it, it's not that good. You, you can be thankful there weren't more cars in the drive through window, but that's about all you can be thankful for. And so what we're doing is we're doing pro forma. We're doing, you know, routine, routinized. Thank you, dear Lord, for this food. May we serve you well. Pass the pizza. It's like that. The next thing that goes is the family altar. And I'm not saying, I'm, I'm not saying that we don't, Hear prayers. We do in Christian homes. There's a vast difference between hearing prayers and having the family altar. We hear prayers because one parent listens to the children as they pray while the other one does the laundry. Why? Because we have to go to work tomorrow. That's why, you know. So gradually, bit by bit by bit, what gets eroded is the function of the tent. And that's really what I came to say. What gets eroded is the function of the tent. And it's nobody's fault. Please hear me. It's a sociological change that could not have been... There's, there's nothing you can do about it. But the tent isn't there transmitting the faith. The tent isn't there telling the narrative. One of the funniest things that ever happened in my life... I was teaching college at the time that our children were growing up. And I always tried... On a college schedule, you can do it. I always tried to be home when the school bus came. Uh, and when young John Tickle was in second grade, I was in the kitchen doing something, I don't know, peeling potatoes, something, always tried to do something innoxious that looked as if it were interruptible, but was really deadly serious, uh, like peeling potatoes. Uh, and I looked out from the county road, and here he, we live in the country, here he came up the driveway just as happy as he could be, grinning ear to ear, and came in the kitchen, and I said, how was school? Oh, it was so good today. And I said, why? And he said, um, George said ass in first period. <laughs> and they took him to the principal's office and she put him in front of that glass window and he had to sit there all day and we waved at him when we went to library and PE and lunch and he cried. That was the coup de grace, he cried. Traditional Christian mom, I'm not being a smart aleck, I said ass isn't necessarily a bad word. Did I ever tell you about Balaam's ass? And I'm off and running, right? Because I'm showing off, no. Because that's just the natural response. I have no doubt we went, you know, to talking snakes and Walt Disney is the original God or God is the original Walt Disney or something. Wherever we went, I don't know. But the next day when the school bus came, 
Here is young John Tickle dragging his tail feathers up the driveway. He had chosen to do exegesis in first period of second grade. <laughs> Why does it matter? Because he knows he's middle-aged now, going bald. He knows who Balaam's ass is. For two and a half generations in this country, almost three now, and for three and a half in the UK, almost four, we have not had that function, that strange thing that happens when without any premeditation, a natural reaction, the stories are carried forward. It is not happening domestically at all. Nor are we having the keeping of the liturgical year that used to happen when Mama was home. My whole message to you, I don't care how much godly play you do, I don't care how much catechesis of the Good Shepherd, it's all wonderful. I love what you do. I admire it deeply. But let me tell you, there's one other step I think that desperately needs to happen, and I think you guys are the ones that are going to make it happen. That is to say, if we can't get back to showing our kids how to live the liturgical year and breathe the story, we are not going to prepare our faith for the next 300 or 400 years of formation. And I think there's only one way to do it. Their parents honestly don't know the story, by and large. They too were reared after the, after the interruption in the domestic transmission. They too did not have the tent. But the, those over 65 have it. They still have it. And if I had my way, every single church, every single congregation would begin to contrive ways to put 65. Whoever said 65 was when you could quit and retire? Bull honky, you know, it's not true. Find some way to get the 65s and over matched up, either with their own grandchildren or with ones in the congregation or ones in the neighborhood, so that it begins to happen, especially in terms of the liturgical year. Carol Burnett was one of the great comedians of all time. Uh, she said some very wise things. The funniest and wisest she ever said was that kids and their grandparents get along so well because they have a common enemy. And that's, uh, that's absolutely, absolutely true. You know, so if you can get your 65s to your 80s or your 85s in some way connected, either with those grandchildren, which is an easy fix, or if they are childless, or if they are in a distant, their own grandchildren are in a different place physically, a different location. If you can get them connected so that there is some kind of ongoing sustained responsibility. That is to say, mom, why have we got purple paper napkins for supper? Oh, sweetie, your Uncle Joe dropped those by. This is the first night of, of Advent, so we're going we're gonna to use the purple napkins. Oh. Is that when we get those purple candles with the strange pink one? Yes, son, that is. We'll get those too because Uncle Joe said he'd bring some of those by. Okay, I think that's pretty cool. What's that pink one about? I can't remember why it's not purple too. What are you doing? You're living the rhythm. You're living the rhythm. Mom, we're having pancakes for supper? I love pancake. Supper? Why are we having pancakes? 
Well, sweetie, great-grandma, you know, great-grandma brought over a, a, a new form of syrup, and she thought you'd want to try it tonight with your supper. We're eating pancakes tonight because all of our ancestors, this is, this is, you know, this is Shrove Tuesday, and tomorrow begins Lent, and all of our ancestors had to get rid of everything. They didn't have any refrigerators or freezers, so they had to get rid of everything that was good that was going to spoil over the 40 days, and so they made pancakes. And we're doing it because our people have been doing it for centuries. Because this is how we prepare and acknowledge the coming. Oh, geez, Mom, I didn't know. Mom, the, the cake, the cake that Grandma brought over here, it's got ribbons coming out of it, Mom. What's that about? Well, son, this is, you know, tonight when we cut the cake first, we're going to pull ribbons. And one of you is going to pull out a baby. It's going to stand for the baby Jesus. This is how we remember. This is how we remember. This is the day on which he was serving. Why does the bread have sugar cross on it? It's hot cross buns, kid. Hot cross buns? Why? This is the day, of the, the, this is the day epiphany begins. This is the day our Lord was shown to the wise men. And so we celebrate. We celebrate with hot cross buns. Oh, God. Precisely. <laughs> Judaism has known from the get-go. Judaism has known and we need to learn the lesson. When the Reformation came along, in order to make separation of church and state happen, it had to separate our churchness from our civicness. 500 years ago, the, one of the things Protestantism did was begin to divide our wholeness into parts so that I have my domestic self and I have my civic self and I have my religious self and I have my professional self and I'm not even schizoid. Um, you know, I can occupy all of those, which means that we began the process of separating the church experience from the public experience, from the intellectual experience, because it was absolutely necessary to make the politics of Reformation times work. The end result of it is we now regard our religious life as here and our domestic life as here, and they may inform each other, but they're not a wholeness. Judaism has known from the get-go, and there's a huge resurgence now because they almost lost it as a result of living with us. So a huge resurgence in Judaism now to be sure we understand that I am Christian. I am an, I'm a, I'm an integer. I am one thing. I am it. All of my pieces are just one, and they're Christian. And everything I do in my home, everything I do in my voting booth, everything I do in my professional life, all of those are a Christian doing them. And I live the rhythms of the narrative, not only of the Bible stories, not only of Balaam's ass or Rahab or Tamar or any of those, not only those, but also the rhythm of the, rhythm of the liturgical year. Unless you live the faith every single day domestically, and the parents right now with whom you're dealing, I suspect can't do that. They're going to have to have the help of your older citizens. Let me say one last thing. Paul's letter, uh, to second letter to Timothy, is fascinating, and I think we don't listen to it as much as we should. Paul and I have some trouble anyway, so I'm not unhappy if you're not listening to Paul anyway. You know, uh, but he's right about this. He greets Timothy, remember? And then he says, and greet Lois and Eunice, your mother and your grandmother, who 
transformed you in the faith. I would submit to you that we may be spending too much time looking for Timothys and not enough time looking for the Loises and the Eunices that are going to form the Timothys. I would submit also that unless you can solve it, you who are responsible by whatever, unless you can solve it, Christianity is going to be in a world of hurt. I'm glad I don't have your job. I, I, I pray for you, I really do. In so many ways, the next four centuries, I suspect, of Christianity rests in your hands. Not just what you do with your congregants and their kids, but how you can make that spread out. How you can make it possible once more to be fully and wholly Christian. May God bless you in that endeavor. of this podcast episode are reproduced by permission of the presenter and Faith Forward under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivations Copyright. The Faith Forward podcasts are produced by Dave Sinis. Stay tuned for more episodes of the 2014 Faith Forward podcast series on the web at faith-forward.net and join us in Chicago for the 2015 Faith Forward gathering April 20th through 23rd.